0: Visit tecovas.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. Yeah Gadget, made in America, based outside of Nashville, Tennessee.
1: what is up everybody welcome back to off the water your premier podcast for all your travel destination and kayaking fulfillments what is up i'm your host jp today we're gonna have a special true north edition of the podcast i'm super excited uh this is going into uncharted territory for me uh, because this is somewhere I've always wanted to go, and hopefully in my lifetime I get to explore this area. But without any further ado, I want to introduce you to my guest today, Mr. Josiah Pleasant. Welcome to the show, man.
2: Hey, glad to be here. Thanks, JP.
1: Awesome. Josiah, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and uh, what got you into kayak fishing, man?
2: Yeah, you know, fisherman from birth, right here. So it's a, a part of my family lineage. But uh, grew up in between Colorado and Washington, and then going up to Alaska in the summers. And um, for a few years now, I've had the the blessing and opportunity to call Southeast Alaska home. So home base is uh, uh, actually on Douglas Island, so across uh, of the way uh, from Juneau, but uh, part of the kind of uh, community there. And uh, man, uh, uh, kayaking is both recreation for me. Um, it's a, a, a way of building relationships. Um, you know, it's an outreach for me, and I'll share a little bit about that. Um, and it's also how I fill the freezer. So uh, it's it's a big part of my life.
1: Awesome, man. You know, a lot of what we know in the lower, uh, you know, in the lower forty-eight, you know, is that. Alaska, when you say it's way to feel your freezer, you know, it, it's it's like the last frontier that's left. There's, you know, so much that you actually have to do uh, in order to survive. So when you start to incorporate kayaking as a means of living as well, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty intense. I don't think a lot of people, I, I, I shouldn't say, I, I do have an aunt who lives in Anaconda, Montana, and she has to prepare in the same way because she's so remote. But there's so much more that's becoming commercially available to us here where you guys still are pretty much the true pioneers of what this country has left.
2: Sure. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a totally different way of life than anywhere I've lived in the lower 48 for sure.
1: Awesome. What got you into kayak fishing?
2: Uh, so growing up, uh, my dad, his his release on the weekends was always getting out and going fishing and um, he loved to troll for salmon. That was his bread and butter. Um, but we got out and we fly fish together on rivers as well. Uh, and when I was, oh, I was probably eight, got my first kayak and uh, realized I could get away from the noise. You know, there's no drone of the motor, no crowds of people because I could get onto skinny water that bigger boats couldn't get onto. But I'm also, you know, out in the water. So I'm getting away from the wade the fishermen. And it was its own niche, um, the serenity of it, the peace of it, the beauty of it. I was hooked. So um, I've, I've had a kayak and been kayak fishing since that point in time. Um, it gets me to places that you can't easily get to otherwise. Um, in the winter time, in, in southeast Alaska, we uh, winterize our, our outboard motors, right? So you've got to winterize them or they're going to get messed up. Um, so when everything's winterized, most of the boats aren't getting out. But if we happen to have kind of a balmy day in the wintertime, I can pull a kayak out and I'm good to go. Don't need to worry about anything winterized with the kayak. So it's kind of fulfilled a a niche there. Um, I get into some inside passage waters that, again, big boats cannot get to. Um, And uh, the way wildlife and and a lot of the fish that I chase are, they they're pretty spooky um, when when boats come around, but they're not spooky with a silent, uh, you know. Uh, bending branches kayak paddle, I can kind of sneak in there and, and uh, it's, it's like I'm a part of the landscape. Um, so that's, that's been a lot of fun. So yeah, it presents a lot of opportunities, of course, keeping my my body active and fit, you know, that's really nice. Um, I'm, I'm sponsored by uh, Jackson Adventures. And so I love to use their kayaks and their gear. Um, and then I'm also sponsored by uh, advanced elements. So a kayak company that makes inflatable kayaks. And so whether I'm going in a, a big boat or a bush plane, sometimes there's no room to take a big 12 foot kayak, but I can take a little suitcase uh, of an inflatable kayak. And so both inflatables and, and you know, full uh, kayaks have been a part of my repertoire for a bit now.
1: That's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I got a couple questions with that too, but the first one is, uh, what Jackson are you paddling
2: up there? So, uh, for a couple years now, Jackson has been wanting to get a Yupik to me. So it's a new mm-hmm. kayak that they came up with. It's actually named for a, a tribe, um, up in Alaska, the Yupik nation. Um, and, uh, the Yupik are, are famous for being kind of the inventors in kayak is what they put together thousands of years ago and it's something that uh jackson is kind of giving a nod to um because of covid and because of production issues i don't have my you pick yet <laughs> so i've been rolling with with my skiffs and rolling with my advanced elements inflatables and and kind of going from there um but uh yeah eventually when uh, covid allows we'll we'll get a pick up here
1: cool now one question I do have that's intrigued me um, with the way Alaska is and the way your temperatures are. Do you guys get above your I should say do the water temperatures and the air temperatures get above 120 degrees when they are combined together at its hottest point in the season? No. So when you're out kayak fishing, are you always in some kind of protective uh, layering for hypothermia year-round? No,
2: no, not generally.
1: No, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's something down here. Being a fireman and uh, being out on Lake Michigan as well, which gets very rough, even like today and yesterday, I wanted to go out fishing on Lake Michigan for smallmouth bass but just that a gentle north breeze at sustained at 15, 20 miles. It was white capping. We had riptide, and we had, uh, we had beaches that were closed by not that drastic wind. But, you know, we follow that rule of thumb because we, we do so many um, water rescues with people who are underdressed for the spill if they were to take it. And, you know, right. being that, you know, again – adaptation is a huge thing too. If you guys are adapted to the cold, what might be cold for us down here, you guys are adapted to up
2: there as well. That's that's true. Yeah, you know, so kayaking for me in Alaska is always a part of a larger journey. Um, Hardly ever do I get to just get in a kayak and that's all I'm doing that day. I'm usually hiking in to a spot where I'm then kayaking from or climbing a mountain to get to a spot that I'm then kayaking from. Or running a big boat across the water, hopping out, taking a kayak, getting to where I can put a smaller boat in or a kayak, and going from there. And so we have to be really conscious of how much weight we're bringing. So having a whole nother set of gear to wear on the kayak isn't feasible most of the time. So oh. you know if we're going to be hiking up a river, usually wearing a you know a good pair of Sims waders, um, and and that's going to be what we're wearing on the water um uh, there are situations too where if we're hiking up a mountain you've got your lighter weight gear that you're wearing you know to climb four thousand feet that day um you know it's a everything that you're going to bring with you ends up having to go on your back at a certain point so you've got to figure out where you can minimize gear
1: that's awesome And for for that is it more recreational or is it for more um lifestyle where you're going to, you know, have to do a hike in or a climb in, um, you know, is, I, I guess my question is, is that the way you're sustaining your living or is that, um, you know, part of sustaining and
2: recreation or is it just purely recreation? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for me, it's, it's personally a lifestyle for me. Uh, that's, okay. um, a, a part of who I am and it's where I, I, feel like I breathe the easiest and I get to be myself, um, and, and years of background and building skills and just different experiences come into play. Um, and so there, are, there are moments for sure where it's something that, that I get to enjoy and, and the peace and silence of calm, you know, it's just me and God out there. Um, there are trips that I take where I'm inviting folks along from a nonprofit standpoint to come to a place of healing. Um, So there are trips that I've got lined up uh, for the rest of this year where I'm taking folks out and there's an intentionality behind the trip itself. Um, Whether it's someone that's coming from a a difficult background in the military, kind of a wounded warrior type trip. Um, It could be someone that's working through things in their lives and in general, and they need that trip to be able to talk things out and and figure out what their next steps are. Um, It's, it's always clarifying. And so for me, um it's not uh, something that I get to to make an income off of, but it's something that I've developed as as an outreach, as as a ministry, as an opportunity to share what's most important, but to do so in a way that I don't really have to say words most of the time. you know the the country around me and the fish and the animals they they do the talking. It's a place that that humbles you. Um it's a place that it brings things out of you and um, I mean, truth be told, JP, every time I take a trip like this, I find something out about myself and I build relationships with the people that I'm with. And so that's become a big part of this for me. Um, but it's, it's really funny as my friends get to know me um, and, and dive into things. Uh, they kind of see, oh, you really do fill the freezer on these trips. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's what I eat, brother. I mean, I'm eating halibut, salmon, right. um, venison and and bear year round. So it's, that's a, uh, that's a big part of my life. Um, you know, going to a restaurant for me is an oddity. That's not something that I do. I'm usually grilling out and having friends over and, and sharing that bounty with the people in my life. So uh, the food aspect of it is part of it too. Um, at the end of the day, I, I don't go to a gym. Um, my, my fitness regimen is, is the kayaking, hiking, backpacking that I do. Um, and and it, you know, when I'm in season, it, it gets me into Spartan shape for sure. So, there's there's a fitness aspect to it as well,
1: absolutely. And you know, like I said, I haven't ventured up that way as much, but going to um, the closer to where you were originally, going out towards Montana, Wyoming, um, and you talk about like national parks like Yellowstone or the Tetons. And I, I, I remember I was out there in 2017 and I was like, you know what, I because I run here in Chicago, I I, I bike and I you know I work out, and I stay in, in great physical shape. But the uh, when I went for just to do a mile run um, at Yellowstone, I got about a half mile in, and I was just gassed because of the the oxygen that gets uh, thinner as you go higher in elevation from sea level. Chicago, we're only maybe about 200 feet above sea level. Uh, going up to Yellowstone, man, you're <laughs> you're up there, and you you feel it, you feel it. Right. So I, I could only I could only admire how well your lungs are are prepared, being that you're climbing mountains on the daily. That's freaking awesome.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a blessed life, man.
1: Cool, man. Well, you had mentioned the food aspect, and part of what we do is you know uh, consider restaurants, but you know what, uh, before we jump into it, you made me kind of rethink the sec or that part of the segment of what I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to hope put the chip right there on pause for that. But one thing I do want to know is, um, when you're fishing, uh, in kayak fishing in a la- in the areas you're at, is there a certain, like, you know how we have certain lakes here in the 48s and rivers and stuff. Is there certain spots that that are known to like if you were to say, hey, JP, let's go to uh, Lake X and this is where we're going to catch, you know, these fish. Or is it just kind of like this is a general area and this is uh, where you find the fish? How, How does fishing work up in Alaska like that?
2: Yeah. So most of the fishing's in the salt. Um, when, when salmon enter fresh water, that's the end of their life cycle. They're, when they're first in fresh water, they're still chrome and they're still good to eat. So catching salmon in the river is legit, but they pretty much stop eating. Your silvers will get bitey. Coho will get bitey. But most other salmon, I mean, once they enter fresh water, one track mine, they're making the next generation and they're going to die. And so mm-hmm. most of our fishing's in the salt. So there, absolutely, there's places where we go to, to fish for halibut in the salt that we know, hey, that's generally a pretty good place to go. And absolutely, there's places that we go for salmon that are generally at the mouths of rivers. It's when the salmon are staging, getting ready to go up river um, and catching them in the salt there. Um, so yeah, there's, there's go-to spots, but most everything's in the salt. Not a lot of lake fishing. Um, by the time that Uh, Sockeye are the only salmon that spawn in lakes. By the time sockeye get to a lake, they're, they're degraded. I mean, they're literally there just to spawn and their bodies have degraded, therefore their meat's degraded. So we like to catch sockeye either in the salt or just in the river as they first come up.
0: Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: Um, you know, there's there's some freshwater fishing, um, but you know, your freshwater fish are so much smaller, you're going to have a harder time filling the freezer chasing freshwater fish, and those opportunities are fewer and farther between. So, uh, nutrient density is, is highest at those river mouths where salt meets fresh. So that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of the sweet spot where I spend a, a fair amount of my time.
1: That's awesome. Now, have you caught, uh, and you know, I've seen pictures of giant hollabuck and weighing hundred plus pounds. Have you had the, uh, fortune to catch one pretty much bigger than you and the kayak put together?
2: Uh, I've caught an 82 pound halibut on the fly on a kayak. Uh, That was an inflatable kayak. Um, and that was, I had about a 10 minute window where the, the wind changed directions. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get the rod out real quick and pull this off. And a, a buddy of mine, Paul had been telling me, Hey, you can catch them on the fly, um, in, in shallow water when the salmon runs have been going steady because the halibut actually chased the salmon and the bigger halibut are eating salmon right before they go into fresh. And wow. uh, so, yeah, I got 82-pound halibut on the fly. I can send you those, those photos for your that's podcast. Awesome. But, um, you know, that's that was a pretty big fish to, to try to get up. And, and you can't pull that into the boat um, at 82 pounds. I mean, it's not yeah. going in the boat. So you either try and gaff them. So you keep a gaff hook, which is precarious, an inflatable kayak. You want to limit the amount of sharp, pointy objects in an inflatable Absolutely. Um, and you know, uh, what a lot of guys will do at the hundred pound and bigger mark is, is they'll carry a, a firearm, um, to, to put the halibut down. Cause they'll, they'll bust you up. I mean, their tail is so strong. Um, and so, no, I, I didn't use a, a firearm, but had a gaff with me and just, you know, I corked the tip of the gaff with, uh, some pool noodle and, um, pulled that out and then had to one arm paddle myself into shore to be able to fillet up the halibut and get it done. But yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun getting after those bigger fish. It's, there's, there's not much else like it when you start getting after big halibut in a kayak.
1: I, have you paid attention to the news as a late of what's going on around the world?
2: Uh, I mean, it, it comes to me, you know, just kind of in relationship, you know, as friends are talking, but um, I try to limit how much I'm taking in just between work and, trying to get out and stay fit in my relationships. I kind of limit my news intake, but it tends to all come to me anyways. So, yeah, I think I'm fairly aware.
1: So did you hear about the gentleman who claims, because it's hard to prove at this moment, but he was, uh, he had been swallowed by a humpback whale off, uh, off the, uh, um, Where is it? Uh, Chesapeake Bay Area. No, no. No, yeah. Chesapeake in Massachusetts. Huh? Oh, gotcha.
2: Yeah, there was a kayaker just a couple weeks ago that was swallowed off of California, too. Um, Get out of here. Yeah. So the the humpbacks bubble feed. And so they'll get in a group, and they literally come up with their mouths like this. And if you're either not paying attention or just happen to be in the wrong spot at the wrong time, I've had humpbacks bump me. I've never been swallowed, but they bump me. So... Yeah, it's a thing. Oh, man. Like,
1: you know, that's something, you know, that, you know, in my mind, I'm going, I, I don't think I've ever had to worry about a whale like that. And hearing that story and now being that you're in, and I know whales are quite frequent, you know, over in Alaska, you know, yep. interesting perspective from you to 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 see that. Just to even know you've encountered a whale that close, something that, that Goliath, that's huge.
2: Yeah, they're not predatory, right? So they're chasing right. bait fish is what they're chasing. And the reason why I end up around whales a lot is those same bait fish are what salmon, salmon or halibut are eating. And so we tend to all end up in this same healthy ecosystem <laughs> together, but they're never chasing you. I mean, that guy getting swallowed. It's that whale was focused on eating bait fish and the dude happened to be there and just, you know, he got caught and the whale spit <laughs> him out. I guess he, the whale broke his leg, you know, chomped down. Um, but yeah.
1: Yeah, the gentleman who was, uh, you know, off the Chesapeake Bay, he, uh, from what I understand, so at first he was initially considered critical because of the fear of um, crush injuries, and compound, you know, and compound syndromes. Um, but, you know, the he wound up making a full recovery and he was talking about it. So it's, inter- it's interesting just to... Have to think of that's kind of an aspect you have to watch out. I mean, bears will get you, but, you know, then you got the whale. And if the whale decides to swallow, (laughs) it's like. Yeah, I've had
2: orcas bump me as well. Orcas are, are, you know, you've got your um, uh, there's two subspecies of orca. There's one that's a a local orca that chases salmon. Mm -hmm. And then there's a subspecies called bigs or transient and they chase marine mammals. And so I'll be in salmon fishing and, you know, you catch a salmon and every sea lion and harbor seal in the area, they tend to notice and they'll kind of chase after you. Uh, last year I was, uh, had a big sea lion. He's about 12 foot long, this sea lion. So 2,500 pounds. I mean, big old stellar sea lion. They're huge, terrifying. He grabbed onto a salmon that I had on a leader. So you catch your salmon and bonk him yeah. and get him on the leader. And he's floating in the kayak next to me. And all of a sudden, I fly backwards and I'm just sleigh ride backwards. I'm like, holy cow, take my kayak paddle and whack the sea lion. And he lets go. (laughs) Um, in that same spot a week later, um, a group of transient orcas came in and they cleaned house on the sea lions. I mean, they just go in and the orcas are literally eating the sea lions. So we're all cheering because the sea lions are kind of a mess. They'll hunt you a little bit and the orcas don't really mess with people, but, um, I could see you could be in a situation if a sea lion happened to be messing with you at just the wrong moment and an orca comes after him, you could get bumped by an orca too. But I've been in a couple situations on big boats when uh, a harbor seal and I've had a sea otter jump on the swim deck of the boat because orcas were chasing them around. So <laughs> the orca never bothered the boat or anything, but they'd wait at the swim deck, you know, 10 feet off, waiting for that sea otter or harbor seal to hop off. So it's a. It's a big world.
1: Yeah, man, that's that's an awesome cycle up there. That's cool. Um, so you know, let's let's hop into it, man. We're talking about you know how things are being eaten and and you know procured. So, um, you know, usually what I do is at this point it's you know restaurants, but you say, but with you saying that you know restaurants are out the equation here, I wanna I want you to give me. If I was to come out there, your top three meals you would cook for your guest.
2: Yeah, so you, you can't beat uh, fresh grilled king salmon. Um, so no. king salmon are starting to run. So I'm, I'm going to be pretty heavily focused on king salmon for the next month. And, uh, I mean, you, you pull a king salmon out of the water, treat it right. Get it home, slice it into steaks. Oh man, there's just there's nothing like it. Fresh Alaskan king salmon, same day over the grill, a little salt and pepper, maybe some lemon. Um, I mean, nature nature's got it all lined up for you there. You don't have to do a whole lot of work. So that's that's a that's a crowd pleaser. Um, so I'll I'll have a crew up uh, here in in a couple of weeks, and uh, they'll probably just be eating king salmon. Uh, you know, at least once or twice a day. It's pretty good. Um, so with King salmon and I'll kind of go in order, um, and how the relationship works, um, you can save the heads from the King salmon and you put them in a crab trap. Most of the crab that I catch is Dungeness crab. Um, so you catch your King salmon, filet them up. Um, my dogs get to eat a lot of the salmon. I, I cook up the salmon for them. You actually can't give it to them raw. There's a parasite they can get and it's a problem. Um, but I found that the bone structure and the bigger Kings that I catch, it's too much for the dogs to easily digest. So I saved that for crab bait, put that in a crab pot with the Dungeness crab, pull them up, crack them open, get all the guts out, boil them for, you know, about seven minutes or so until, you know, it reaches a nice foam on top and they're red. Delicious, man. A little bit of lemon and butter. Oh, it's, it's, it's pretty good. So that's meal number two. The halibut, um, they chase both Dungeness crab and the halibut do chase salmon. Um, And uh, I've had several people tell me that my fried halibut's the best fried fish they've ever had. So I've got a proprietary uh, uh, blend of batter that I make and um, it's it's pretty delicious. So you slice the halibut into steaks and, and go from there. Halibut and salmon are both super meaty fish. So the percentage of meat that you're getting from the weight of the fish is extremely high. So that eighty-two pound halibut, I mean, you're eating for a couple of weeks, and that's meals with friends. Uh, so a lot of good meat, but yeah, those three from the sea—that's those are pretty good meals there. So kings, dungeness, and and halibut.
1: So that where's my plane ticket to come? Because that sounds awesome.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a nice way to live. Cool.
1: Now, um, up, you know, how how remote are you from Juno itself? Like in terms of um, remote or wilderness uh, where, you know, are are you easily, are are things easily accessible to add accessories? So like a grocery store or like, you know, maybe a um, liquor store or a convenience store, something like that. Is that within range or is that something that has to be, thought out and accommodated to go to and, and make a huge trip out of it to go there.
2: Yeah. So on the Island that I'm on Douglas Island, there is a bridge that connects Douglas to the mainland and Juno's on the other side of that bridge. Um, and so on Douglas, we don't have a grocery store. There is a convenience store. Um, but of course you're paying out the nose for anything that you're going to buy at that convenience store. So I don't buy anything at a convenience store. Juno itself does have a cut, have a couple of grocery stores. So if you want to go to the grocery store, you can. But again, everything's shipped up right to Alaska, so you're paying out the nose for you know grocery items that would be significantly cheaper where you are. So anything that you can do yourself, well, you're doing yourself a favor from a, from a checkbook standpoint um but yeah i mean there's some things that i that of course i end up needing to get at the grocery store i, I don't grind my own flour i buy flour for the the halibut batter you know I'm, i don't make my own beer although a lot of my friends do um uh, but uh i i buy my own beer and um you know if i if i need to get some veggies or fruits um you know some years if we have a sunny summer you can actually grow a, a fair amount because it's light all day right so food yeah. grows really fast so if you have a garden. Um, the last two summers now, we've we've really not had much sunshine, so you couldn't grow much to speak of. Uh, so you know, I I kind of live uh, a straight uh, uh, keto diet, which is it's kind of funny, um, but that's just the way I live. So that that menu that I gave you, uh, king salmon, Dungeness crab, and halibut. Um, as far as seafood, you know, I I can do that every day, and I'm I'm happy as a clam at high tide. So. Uh, but I I do have a fair amount of red meat too, but that's all all meat that I get myself. So yeah, that's the grocery store situation and how that plays out for me. Now, it,
1: it's funny you said you, you're doing keto without intentionally doing keto, just because the way things are are up there. Um. So, and you know, part of my ignorance, if this comes off the wrong way, but. It, Is there enough land, or is the climate sustainable to have cattle uh, within Alaska, or is it just impossible?
2: Not, not where we're at. Um, So I'm in a rainforest, and and there are no cows. Uh, No, it's not sustainable for cattle. Um, You know, it's it's old growth rainforest where it hasn't been logged, and it's second and third and fourth growth rainforest where it's been logged. So um, not suitable for for cattle or for most livestock. You know, there's some there's some pigs. Um, that that you could do that are cold climate pigs that do okay in the wet um, you know there might be a, a couple other animals but other than that I mean there isn't a whole lot that you could try and do uh, long-term or sustainably with livestock but then again you know um, God's placed some some amazing wildlife that when managed well and, and that we take care of well we, we do pretty good so yeah
1: awesome now you had managed Uh, Craft beers. Um, What are your three beers or beers of choice that you would go on and recommend for people to try from um, from Alaska?
0: At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages. Things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com.
2: Yeah, so I mean, it's if you got an Alaskan on your show, it's it's could come across as cliche, but we all drink Alaskan, so Alaskan Brewery is pretty pretty staple. Um, so my my three favorites. There's a there's a jalapeno pineapple gose that they came out with. Holy cow, it's really good. I lived in Mexico for a couple of years, so having some spice when I'm having a good plate of seafood, um, and that pineapple zest that comes out in it, it's it's pretty dang good. Um, you know, uh, uh, that's that's pretty solid. I, I like their stouts. I'm a stout guy. I got to teach in in uh, Scotland and Ireland and. Uh, you know, good, good stouts, hard to beat, um, for me. Absolutely. And so I do really like, yeah, I, I like Alaskan stouts quite a bit. Um, you know, being from the Pacific Northwest, they come out with different things from local berries, um, and the stuff that they make with local berries is, is really dang good too. Um, and so, so I like those, uh, they call them their pilot series. Every summer they'll come out with, um, generally six or seven, um, brews and, and they tend to go over really well. Um, so that's Alaskan Brewery. Um, Rainier's really popular. It's just like a, a staple, like lower cost beer. So uh, we call it pork chop in a can. So a lot of guys will backpack with Rainier's and at the end of the day have a cold Rainier. Um, having ribs over the fire on the beach, a couple of cold Rainier's, that's that's pretty staple too. Um, cool. I'm pretty simple guy, so that, that covers it for me. Awesome. Now, I usually go... And we talk about,
1: you know, like uh, distilleries or um, any type of, um, you know, where they would make malt liquor. Now, I guess that's a question. Are there distilleries in in Alaska, like micro distilleries?
2: There are, but um, that's, you know, in mainland. So Juneau does not have access to the highway system. So Juneau itself functions as kind of an island. Um, but up in Anchorage and going out towards Delta Junction, you know, there's there's definitely some infrastructure for distilleries, and and I know there's at least a couple. Um, but in Juneau, there isn't. There's just Alaskan Brewing um, there locally. That's that's pretty significant. And there's some smaller smaller breweries as well, but Alaskan is is the main deal in Juneau.
1: Now, with that being said, is there a you know how, like in the Appalachians, there's um there's moonshine. Is there a certain kind of drink or specialty spirit that's crafted for uh for Alaska or for Alaskans or that you Alaskans make that you know it's only to Alaska. If you don't go there, you're not gonna know about it. And then we you try, it, you're go, holy crap! I need to bring this home to my friends, but you're gonna forget the recipe.
2: Yeah. You know, they're just the the climate and the access to grain is so limited that, you know, it's not uh, super common that folks have brewed their their own stuff, you know, from scratch. Right. So from a cultural or historical standpoint, um, there are folks that do it, but it's generally one off type stuff. But I tell you what, most guys that are going to be in the backcountry for a while, they're going to have a flask of whiskey. Um, And it's it's pretty common and some of it might be Russian influence and some of it's just, you know, I've also heard of guy's purifying water this way, but using vodka and just having that on hand, like, ah, oh, this looks a little murky, put some vodka in it, it'll kill the <laughs> creatures in it kind of deal. But um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty common for guys to have, uh, you know, a flask of, of something in their backpack, but generally it's something that folks have picked up from a store. Um, not something that they've, they've made themselves. Oh,
1: cool. Now. Um, so we're going to, segue into um, because obviously, you, you know, with the climate and the landscape, it, it's hard to have like a vineyard or uh, make wine in the area. However, though, um, let's get into the national park system there, if you don't mind. So With the national park system, how many national parks, if you can refresh my memory, are in Alaska, if you
2: know offhand? Oh, I mean, but we don't count them. So the deal is like other than the Anchorage metropolitan area and and Fairbanks is getting to be this way too. Most of Alaska, I mean, you go a few minutes past wherever you you live and you're out in it. Um, So whether it's state land, federal land, um, or or in in monuments fall into federal or national forest, um, which is not a national park. Um, I mean, you're out in it, and so national parks are not super common for for most Alaskans that are kind of living the Alaskan life, because you generally can't hunt, and in some national parks you, you can't fish, and so most folks are wanting to get out in places where you can engage in that lifestyle where you're taking care of your family from a food standpoint for the year. And so most of my hunting and fishing is is in the Tongass National Forest. The Tongass is the largest national forest in the country. Um, And actually, you know, you'll kind of see the news on this and it's kind of a a big deal. Um, They rescinded what was called the roadless rule, the Trump administration did. Um, And uh, the Biden administration, uh, it looks like, is going to overturn that And bring the roadless rule back into effect. What the roadless rule means is for the 9.2 million acres that I hunt and fish in and that hundreds of thousands of other Americans get to enjoy, both residents and non-residents, you generally can only access most of the best places by boat or float plane and there aren't any roads. Um, The only exception to that is Prince of Wales Island, we call it POW. Prince of Wales does have a pretty significant road system but most everything that I do, JP, there are no roads where I go at all, which means generally there's no people, which from a fishing yeah. and hunting standpoint, I mean, it's like going back to the Garden of Eden. It's, it's amazing. It's, <laughs> there's no other place like it that I've been on the planet and, and I've lived and worked in, on six con- on six continents. So, you know, I can, I can speak with a, a little bit of background to say Alaska is an amazing place in that sense. So uh, when I talk about national forests that has a roadless rule, which the Tongass um, here, hopefully in a, in a couple or a few weeks, we'll have that roadless rule reenacted again. Um, it's a place that's preserved to be pristine. It's preserved to have that old growth forest. Um, it's preserved to have amazing hunting and fishing opportunities and hopefully will be that way for generations to come. Um, you know, something that uh, some of my older friends told me when I was younger, JP, I, I would come up to Alaska and fish. Um, I think the first time I got to come up to Alaska and fish in the summer, I was nine years old. Uh, the old timers would say Alaska's just 30 years behind the lower 48 in terms of fishing, honey. you know, just shrinking, just the encroachment of the suburbs and, and metropolitan areas, that kind of thing. And uh, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're pretty much right for anywhere that you can build. And so one of the unique things about uh, the Tongass National Forest is it, it's so remote in some places and, and the mountains are so steep and the way the tides are, it's so difficult to even put a dock in that a lot of these places, if, if a rule like the roadless rule is, is kept in place, they're not going to change, um, at least the land itself. Now, in the water, the problem is the same salmon that I catch on Fish Creek and, and, and just uh, across from Juneau, Alaska on Douglas Island, that salmon's likely traveled thousands of miles in its life. And that salmon's going to have to evade international fishing, right? Other countries, once you're 12 miles off the coast, they're out there fishing for salmon. We've got our own commercial fisheries. We've got charter fisheries that are you know chasing salmon with tourists coming into town. And then you've got the subsistence folks, and so our our saltwater fisheries have have been on a steady decline across the board. And there are rules in place to try and help with that. You know, there's some ocean acidification that's taken place. This uh, uh, amalgamation of water that's low in oxygen, called the blob, off of the North Pacific, that's literally a dead zone where oh. all of the smaller organisms that bait fish eat are, are gone, and so the bait fish are gone. And so you get salmon that are coming back either skinny or stunted or even emaciated because they didn't get the food they needed. Obviously a lot of salmon don't survive because of that. And so, you know, in terms of talking about your, your national parks, you know, for us, it's really a national forest. It's the Tongass. Um, And for us, as we're kind of looking at that, it's a, it's an interesting scenario in that the saltwater that we're fishing from has, has really been decimated. Um, And so it's, It's a unique time for me, JP, in that uh, the fishing and and hunting and opportunities that I have, they're really, really precious And that in a lot of places, those opportunities are going away. And and it does feel more like a lower 48 type fishery in some places, Um, places that are dependent upon hatcheries, right? So Mm -hmm. artificial involvement of people to try to pump more fish in because the native fish aren't making it. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out, but it's definitely a current event as far as the Tongass and the roadless rule goes. And, uh, I'm hopeful, <laughs> um, but I, I, tell you what, I'm, I'm in the midst of, uh, trying to, to Carpe Diem every season because, uh, there's no guarantee that it's, it's going to stay pristine and, and bountiful as it is even a, a couple years from now. So we'll see how it goes.
1: Yeah. I mean, even here in the Great Lakes region, you know, We were talking, um, you know, I being in Chicago, I'm on the southwest end of Lake Michigan. And we went to the over, when was it, the end of March, we went up to Chiver City, Michigan, which is the center. It's pretty much like the eastern center part of Lake Michigan on the Michigan side of the state. And, um, you know, the waters itself are up there are blue and it almost looked turquoise. I know fishing's good there. I mean, there's a lot of, I shouldn't say untouched because it's a, it's, it's a populated area, but it's not like here in Chicago where, you know, it is, I mean, i I've watched so much happen in terms of, you know, environmental destruction conservation not being put up first and foremost to try to help sustain what's going on. We have erosion that's happening, some natural occurrences that are occurring. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't help that there's industry all along Lake Michigan as well. And going into the inland lakes, when we talk about that, those are the lakes that are further away from the Lake Michigan itself. You know, when the spawn happens, I myself, I don't want to fish during the spawn just because I want our fisheries to sustain. Does it need the help of artificial help with hatcheries and stuff? Absolutely. That's why we have stocking programs. But the other problem we have is people don't really pay attention to regulations. So they'll keep a they'll keep a nine-inch crappie, a 14-inch bass, and then catch a 22-inch bass and keep that same 22-inch bass. And now you have you have what was a big fish and in that water gone. There's nothing there to sustain it took that fish forever to grow. Will it have died off? Yeah, but there's that's still a producer and that's still producing more eggs. And you know, people don't understand the concept or the idea of harvesting limits and and actually is what you're catching worth harvesting? Because what are you going to get off a Nine inch crappy. You know what I'm saying? Um, right. you, you gotta, you gotta have these in place. But again, people, people don't care. You got your weekend warriors who don't pay any regard. You, I could tell you right now. I watch our Department of Natural Resource Police. They're always out, and they have. They start with a full ticket book, and they write tickets that don't get paid. You know, it's it's insane. And for someone like myself and like you who love this land who love nature who love god's creations and what's here it it hurts to see but the best you can do is continue to do your part to make it sustainable you know yeah yeah well that i i'm i'm happy that you still have a slice of heaven but also you know that 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 statement's scary that you guys that 30 year when someone told you that when you were nine which was probably 20 something years ago now is coming to fruition you know
2: yeah 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 you pretty much have to get to where people don't go but then even then anything that's coming from the salt has passed through many many spots where it had to evade issues that that are definitely you know caused by people. So it's, it's interesting, anything that that has a life cycle that goes out to sea, I mean, you can do what you can to protect your area and clean up your area. But if another country decides not to, you know, what do you do? So our our main river, the Taku, um, we share with British Columbia, British Columbia has horrible mining policies. I mean, they literally just dump uh, chemicals from their mining into the Taku. And so even though that's dumped in British Columbia, it impacts our fishery in Southeast Alaska. So it's it's pretty interesting. You know, you you take care of what you can and you're responsible for what you can, but in a in a larger ecosystem, you're dependent upon other people contributing to to that cleanliness and that, you know, that bounty as well. So it, it definitely takes a global village to try and maintain a, a solid salmon fishery and unfortunately that that global village has not participated at a high level together. um, in some cases, in some places. So, yeah. Before history is written, it's played before it's frozen in time. It's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.
1: Well, you know what? Enough of the, the sadness and thinking of it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna move on. <laughs> so, this next topic um, is the one that. I want you to kind of, if you could take, actually, I, I think I know where you're going to go with this once I asked the question. So I'm going to pose the question to you. you answer it how you feel appropriate? If you can now, usually I ask, you know, what are some, you know, places to go for like children's museums or, you know, uh, monuments to see or so on and so forth for you in Alaska? someone comes and it doesn't have to be anything related to kayak fishing uh, it can be a, a combination of things if that what what, what is and you, you might have touched on it earlier but what is the wow factor that you're going to show somebody that they could take away and go wow this was well worth it and again I think I know where you're going going with it but it's good to hear again
2: yeah I mean the wow factor for me. Personally, and what I share with those that I'm close with that want to get after it is taking them out and doing the stuff that I do on the water in the mountains. I mean, it's truly, I mean, there are moments in time that are clarifying for my life. And I love sharing that with others. And so first and foremost, definitely getting people out doing all the things that uh, you've gotten to hear about in this podcast episode so far. Um, I do have friends that will come up and they're either older or maybe dealing with an injury or or a disability and and can't get out and do some of the same things in the same way. And so there's some amazing things to do around town. There's a glacier, uh, that Mendenhall Glacier, that's just inside town. So you can drive right up to it and hop out of the car and, you know, walk a quarter mile and you've got these panoramic views in front of a glacier. And that's that's really nice. Uh, There's a gondola that goes up to a a mountain, Mount Roberts, and you get panoramic views over – Gastineau Channel and and you can see if you climb up further up the mountain, you can see backwards to British Columbia or you can look across to Douglas Island. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And and there's a gondola that goes right up, right? So um, there are some memorials um, to men that have died at sea. Um, And so it's a, it's a sobering reality, but the waterfront is, is done really nicely. You know, it's set up for tourism. Uh, Generally speaking, the the, uh, Southeast Alaskan economy planned for, over two million cruise ship visitors, and that changed in COVID. I mean, they cut out cruise ships entirely uh, during COVID. Um, Alaska uh, passed some new legislation that allows cruise ships to bypass Canada. Canada still not allowing uh, cruise ships to come through, but now cruise ships can come directly up from, say, Seattle uh, to Southeast Alaska. So they'll be coming back. So our waterfront, all the dock there and the shops, you know, it's it's set up for tourism, and it's neat to walk along and. There's some legit stuff to check out. There's some touristy stuff to check out too, um, but on a sunny day, that's that's a pretty nice thing to do as well. So yeah,
1: cool. Yeah, I mean, I just based upon when you first said it, you know, I felt for me, you know, the way you described your, you know, um, what you do on a daily basis, you know, it's kind of like how my trip to um, Moab, Utah, was. Um, we did three, we did four days. We mountain biked 125 miles in total, um, over the course of four days. But they were black diamond roads that were on the outskirts of Canyonland National Park, so it wasn't a flat ride at all. I mean, it was it, you, you had to work for it. Three nights perimeter capping, but you know, for that, in the same reflection, um, you know, that's how I thought, you know, what I mean, there was completely disconnected from the world. I was able to refine myself, refine the love I have for myself in this world and the people in it. And I got to do it for my best buddies and two strangers who became friends to us. Or actually technically four strangers, the two guides and the two other guys who were going into our group. And we all became one unit for four days. And I tell you what, man, that was you know that I I could I could describe it to you. But until, and that's for anybody listening, until you actually disconnect from the world and cleanse your soul, you're not going to understand it of what we're really saying. Because I could sit here till I'm blue in the face and tell you what it's like, but you had to experience it. And the way you described what you do brought me right back, right back to those moments.
2: Yeah, no, we're we're really blessed to get out and enjoy beautiful places with, with people. It's it's a blessing to do that. It's a blessing to have that fitness, uh, to be in, in a place where it's so accessible. I mean, we're we're blessed to have that, but you you say it right. I mean it, it helps refine and transform who you are getting out in those experiences. I, I get to be the best version of who I am.
1: Absolutely. Amen. Well, uh we are we are actually we're approaching uh, the time for um, for one sip, man.
2: Do you have a beer ready? <laughs> yeah, I'll go grab you one. All right, so we got... Oh, I had to had to grab it cold. Kent couldn't leave one sitting out here warm. So it's a Dark Star <laughs> Imperial Oatmeal Stout. So right. pretty pretty good way to way to go.
1: Is that a Is that Alaskan Brewery?
2: It is not. It's a Pacific Northwest beer. So okay, uh, but uh, you know, like Deschutes is pretty popular up here. You know, stuff some pretty popular breweries in Oregon and, and Washington make their way up to Alaska. So yeah, nice. Well.
1: And while you're doing that one, the this one I have right here is going to be called, or it's actually spelled out Lager, L-A-G-E-R. And this is another one by, um, we had them on the show last last time, but this is Black Horizons here in Brook. So it's only 20 minutes from where I live, and they've been putting out some great beer. So this one is, uh, I have not had this one yet, so this is going to be a true rating. So, yeah, sip. Everybody knows the rules. Let's get at it. Ooh, Ooh that's, that's good. <laughs> I, I haven't been disappointed by any other beers. And I'll tell you what, the slagger that I have right now. As light as it is, it has like almost like a honey taste to it, and that's very refreshing. Nice. This is uh, if I give it on a scale of one to one to five, definitely I'd say four and a quarter, four and a quarter for this one. It, it yeah. has good, the back notes are good, it's all around full body is really good. I just gotta make sure I'm settled on a 4.25, yeah, maybe 4.35. <laughs>
2: What about yours, man? Pretty good stout. So, you know, I, I like something that's hearty. It's got some some oomph to it. Um, you know, it's an oatmeal stout, so it's got that kind of opening grain of the earth. And, um, yeah, the finish is uh, nitro, maybe a little bit of coffee in there. Um, yeah, I'd say, you know, solid, solid 4.1. And I'm not out doing anything fun yet. So that's we have a rating <laughs> in Alaska. So everything is better when you're in the field. So it's a 4.1 sitting in a chair with you, even though this is a great podcast. But if I'm having this out on a beach in a remote area, it's a solid 4.6 at that point in time. So awesome. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, that, hey, man. Can't beat it. Cheers again. Cheers. Dilly dilly. All right. So we are close to that time, man. It, I again, I, I almost feel like we did this, and the questions are even more than what I was expecting. So thank you so much for uh for filling us in on you know not only just what Juno has to be but the lifestyle the lifestyle is the biggest thing man and and how the alaskan way you know it it, how it is that's i i hope our listeners really get the perspective of what you're doing for your life and become inspired to to do the best to do and be the best they can be man so thank you again for coming on and uh and talking about uh everything you know that makes you yeah, happy to. Do you, Is there anybody or any sponsors you want to give a shout out
2: to? Yeah, Jackson Adventures has been great. You know, we're trying to get some pretty good gear up here this uh, this summer and fall. So we'll see if we can pull that off logistically. But, man, it's been a, a fantastic relationship. They're coming out with some great boats. Um, uh, and, you know, it's a, it's an organization that cares about, you know, what we've talked about on this podcast, getting out there and, being the best version of ourselves and in, in a pristine environment. And so I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Um, tell you what, when I'm, I'm going remote, it's been really nice having advanced elements, uh, kayaks, uh, be able to pack something in. I think my, my lightest one, it's 24 pounds by the time everything's packed down and put that in a backpack and pretty nice to have a kayak ready to go at that level. Um, they've come up with a, a couple of cool, uh, uh, angling inflatables as well. So I've got a, a straight edge angler pro from them. That's been great in Alaska. Um, Benny branches is, is fantastic. I've got their, their carbon, uh, angler pro paddle and that has been uh, fantastic to have in the field. Um, it's, it's tough when things get really cold on your hands after a while. And that carbon is a lot nicer in the cold than aluminum. Let me tell you. Um, Absolutely. so Benny branches has been fantastic. Um, you know, getting out and, and doing these kinds of things, a, a nonprofit that I work with, uh, Agathos International, it's been fantastic to be able to serve with a, a sweet spot for me and, and my life and being able to encourage folks and get them out and in um, environments where they feel like they can tackle and, and open up to, to, I would say, transformation through things that they're working on in their lives. That's been fantastic. So having some organizational support to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for for next steps and, and next steps are possible um, with a lot of gratitude towards organizations that, that have supported me. So I'm grateful.
1: Very good. Very good. Well, Josiah, I want to thank you again. And then to our listeners, I hope you guys really got something out of this. Um, you know, this is It's not often we, you know, we get to, we always hear, you know, the travel travel, but this one really puts into perspective, um, you know, what we're, a lot of us are about when we're outdoors, man, and why we're, why we love the outdoors and why we love where we're at. Um, Again, thank you for your perspectives. Uh, I want to close out by mentioning that we are on Waypoint TV now. So for those who are listening, if you don't know, now you know, We are on Waypoint TV. Check us out. But if you are listening to this and you are in the Midwest, it's too late. It's going on. But this weekend, specifically Saturday, the day that this airs, uh, we have the PNF tournament in Madison. So if you're not signed up, uh, you're listening to this too late, but sign up for the Fox tournament event. You will see me there. You will see A lot of us there and that's going to be a big one because that is home waters for a lot of us so guys thanks again for listening this has been off the water until next time peace thank you josiah thanks jp